You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Now, are you a Felicity, a Kirsten, a Samantha, a Molly, or a Josefina? That's a common question among fans of the American Girl line of books and dolls. The brand was founded by Pleasant Roland in Wisconsin back in the 1980s, went on to become an icon of girlhood for many in the 1990s and 2000s. Beyond the dolls and books, American Girl turned into a kind of lifestyle brand for young girls, including, but not limited to, theater kits, recipes, paper dolls, a magazine, and advice books on health and friendship. Our next guest hosts a podcast that revisits the American Girl series through a historical lens. They've just co-authored a new book exploring what they call the wonderful and wild world of American Girl fandom. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Did you have an American Girl doll when you were younger or did your kids? Did you especially relate to any of the characters or their stories? What kind of influence has American Girl had in your life, in your family? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney are historians, co-hosts of the Dolls of Our Lives podcast, and co-authors of that new book. It's called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit, American Girl. Allison and Mary, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Mary, let's start with you. Uh, You say in the podcast and the book that you're a total Molly. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the American Girl lineup, we're pretty familiar here in Wisconsin, but tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, you know, how you connected to one of the particular American Girl characters. Sure. So I received Molly on when I was nine years old on Christmas Eve. So she was the first American Girl doll I'd ever heard of or met. And she lives during World War II. And I just was so fascinated by her books. I was always more of a fan of the books than dolls in particular. But really for me, what what made Molly my favorite was that she kind of her stories function as a bridge to one of my favorite people in my life, my grandmother, who I'm named after, who I affectionately called Fluffy, um, who, you know, didn't read the books. But because I had, I could ask her lots of questions about growing up during World War II and if she had a victory garden and things like that. And Allison, you are also a long time uh, Molly. What led to that connection for you? So my story is actually really similar. I also received a Molly as my entry point into the American Girl brand, but her stories were something that just really fascinated me. I love to kind of step inside someone else's life, and I was very jealous of her bangs and her eyewear. So I did try to kind of facilitate the eyewear piece by just like failing an eye exam. That was not successful. (laughs) Now I don't have to try. I just fail all on my own. I got a haircut not long after getting my Molly. There was something about her spirit, her tenacity, her patriotism. All those things were just so fascinating to me. And for me, it was a bridge to my mom, who was a doll collector, loved playing with dolls and dollware. So it was just kind of a, a whole new exciting chapter for me as a kid. Now, I asked about your uh, Molly origin stories to kind of demonstrate that there's a connection with American Girl dolls that I don't I don't think we see with other lines. Mary, what is it about American Girl that that can have that deep level of uh, personal connection for the two of you and for so many of your podcast listeners? 
Well, I think, you know, speaking for myself and and for the stories that we've been lucky enough to collect from a lot of our listeners that are in the book, I think the design of the brand itself lent itself to that kind of lifelong connection. When Pleasant Rolland invented American Girl, she dreamed of the dolls and the books together as something that would encourage girls to both see themselves at the center of the story and also to learn through play, to read the stories, but then reinforce it by playing with the dolls and the world of accessories. And she also saw this as something that would be passed down at a at a speech that she gave at Colonial Williamsburg at the launch of Felicity. She gives us really beautiful um, offers these remarks about, you know, envisioning this being passed down kind of matrilineally, matrilineally from mother to daughter and so on. And we've lived long enough that we've actually seen that happen. We are not parents ourselves, but we have a lot of listeners who are kind of reinvigorated with the brand by getting the chance to share them with a whole new generation. And Allison, I should point out in the podcast, in the book, you and Mary are are fans, clearly, of American Girl. You're not boosters. You don't uh, don't look at it uh, without uh, criticism. Can you talk about, you know, as you look back as a grown up to your childhood experience, uh, some of the questions that that were raised? Yeah, I think we've joked on the podcast that we're not in the pocket of big dolls, so to speak, <laughs> that, you know, we have enough distance from these things, both by aging and having some time away. You know, I collect dolls actively now along with accessories, but that's something I didn't do for a period of time. So I was able to kind of revisit the stories, revisit my collection, go back to this idea of collecting. And I think having criticism of things that you once loved is really good. It's it's a positive thing to do. We've never marketed this as a purely nostalgic trip down memory lane because we're really curious in what adults think about these things now and how new generations are interpreting them. Talking to Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney, authors of the new book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. You can follow their podcast, Dolls of Our Lives, as well. We asked around Wisconsin Public Radio here for some memories of American Girl. Here's one of the responses we got. This is Maureen McCollum, host of WPR's Wisconsin Life, and I am so happy to talk about my Kirsten doll. For those who don't know, Kirsten was one of the original American Girl dolls. She was a Swedish immigrant. Her family moved to the prairies of Minnesota sometime in the 1800s. And the Kirsten doll itself was one of my most treasured, fancy possessions. My Aunt Mo gifted her to me when I was maybe five or six. And then every Christmas or birthday, my aunt would send me another outfit or a little accessory to go with my Kirsten doll. And I actually just recently unearthed my Kirsten doll, pulled her out of a box, smelled super musty, but the dresses and the doll itself, like this wave of emotions came over me. Just this love for this doll returned and remembering how special she was. It's a feeling that just hasn't gone away over all these years. Mary, can you talk? I'm, I'm guessing you've heard that from a lot of your podcast listeners, that personal connection, as Maureen said, after all those years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a powerful thing. I've heard stories like that so many times, and obviously I've experienced that myself. And, you know, what's really interesting is as she was talking, I was laughing because Allison and I had no memory of the stories of those books before we <laughs> reread them on the show. And yet we could swear to anyone that they were so formative not only to us as people, but of our choice to become historians. Like, for example, spoiler alert, Kirsten's best friend dies en route, you know, on their journey out west from cholera. And it's extremely tragic and traumatic for many people, apparently not us, because we had no memory of that before we sat down to reread those books. 
And Allison, that is a common theme in a lot of these books. There are pretty uh, traumatic situations that a lot of uh, these uh, doll-based characters face in their in their stories. Yeah, the authors who were chosen by first, you know, Pleasant Rowland with her early company, you know, she came out of a background of education and media. And even the most recent authors, you know, perhaps most notably Britt Bennett, these are people who care a lot about telling great stories with children and for children. So they're not shying away from difficult topics. And we hear so often from people that this was the first time they really learned something real about a topic such as slavery. Even the books that take us to the War of 1812, a largely forgotten chapter in U.S. history, they give us kind of these harrowing incidents where kids are doing things we don't expect I don't know that we want to encourage children to be part of, you know, cannonball smuggling schemes, <laughs> but we can't all be proud, right, of a girl who frees herself from slavery. So they really give you a spectrum to dive into. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Liz is with us in Lyon. Liz, hello. Hi. What do you want to tell us about, Liz? I agree with both of you. Um, I loved Molly because I couldn't get any information out of my grandfather. He refused to speak about his service in World War II, and I was obsessed with it at, at a young age. And, oop, I think we lost Liz, but I think uh, our producer, she's getting to the point that uh, the books gave her some of that background. Mary, that reminds me, I think it was uh, you talking about your grandma in the book where the Molly books were, even though she didn't read them, as I recall, the Molly books gave you a lot of conversation starters to talk about her life in the, I think, the Depression and World War II eras. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, my grandmother, like it sounds like the, uh, Liz's grandfather, didn't really want to talk about that period in her life um, voluntarily because it was a tough period of her life. It, there was a lot of privation and, and challenges. But because I could use the language of the Molly books, she really, you know, did satisfy my curiosity. And I learned so much about her that I probably wouldn't otherwise have known. And my own grandfather served in the war as well. And he um, passed away before I was born. So these books also are a way for me to invite her to share with me, you know, things about the life of a person I would never get to meet. So that was, you know, really special and important. Thanks a lot for that call, Liz. Sorry, we lost you at 800-642-1234. Michelle joins us now in Janesville. Michelle, hi. Hi, I just wanted to make the comment um, that as an elementary teacher, I incorporated the Felicity series into my third grade classroom, and we did a whole unit study on um, the American Revolution using Felicity as our main um, our main source. Interesting. And did the kids uh, respond to that, Michelle? You know, even like the girls were having a, an American girl craze at that point mm -hmm. in time, but the boys really enjoyed the historical part of it. Um, yeah, we found an interactive website that I pulled up on the smart board. We did crafting projects. We did cooking. Um, yeah, it was a great resource for us to use. Michelle, thanks a lot for that call. That The girl and boy thing reminds me, was it you, Allison? I can't remember where you would be read to uh, and the brothers in the family didn't want to have anything to do with this because it's a girl. But wait, they keep showing up to hear the books being read out loud. That was well, I, actually... That's um, Mary's brother. That was Mary. I'm yeah, sorry. My okay. brothers. Yeah, no, it's okay. But yeah, they, they avowedly said it wasn't for them. It was girl <laughs> stuff. But then one by one, they would join us. And we really all love those books together. Thanks a lot for that call. And the idea of this as part of a teaching tool, Allison, do you have thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think what's so great about that phone call is in the Felicity books and any of these series, you see kids having a really important role in history. So kids are active agents and they're not just experiencing something of the past, but they're going out and sometimes they're doing things that that maybe we're not so sure about as adults looking back. That's what creates some of the comedy and tension. But I think for any kind of kid to see that children experience the revolution in a certain way, that's something they're probably really not likely to get in textbooks. And, you know, I talk about child labor with kids almost every day at my job and hearing about kids in history can sometimes still be a novel thing. Thanks again for that call, Michelle, at 800-642-1234, talking to Mary Mahoney and Allison Horrocks. They are co-hosts of the podcast Dolls of Our Lives. Their new book is called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit, American Girl. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a story to share about American Girl dolls in your own life or maybe a family member? Do you have questions for our guests about uh, some of what they've explored in their podcast or the new book? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue We continue our talk with Mary Mahoney and Allison Horrocks, co-hosts of the Dolls of Our Lives podcast, co-authors of a new book by the same name that explores the cultural impact, nostalgia, and more surrounding the American girl brand of dolls. Still time for you to join in with your thoughts, your experiences with American Girl. Join in at 800-642-1234 as a kid, as a parent. Maybe as an employee of the company, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Again, we asked our WPR colleagues to share stories. Our own Rochelle Wilson uh, had a uh, deep cut to share. So I have an American Girls deep cut. I used to play the American Girls premiere, an educational computer game that came on a CD-ROM back in the 90s. Basically, you could play with different American Girl characters and create these little stage plays on the computer with your own dialogue and movements. And my sisters and I loved to put little plays together. And it was just one of the ways that I connected with American Girl. Mary, it's not just the books and dolls. And in the book, you write about people taking it further, uh, using social media now to do, in effect, their own fan fiction types of videos. How much have people taken the original premises and run with them? Well, you could say there's people are living out loud. They're taking a lot of latitude and I'm here for it. You might imagine it as a kind of fan fiction or just kind of a re-engagement with the brand to, in some cases, you know, reignite that nostalgia you have for a childhood um, love of the brand, like the 
the, the computer game, um, or to kind of incorporate more representation into a character story that you wish had been there at the start. So there's Instagram accounts like Lesbian Kirsten that argues just that, that Kirsten was a lesbian and, or is a lesbian, I should say, and, you know, just creates representation around that. There's a lot of great um, interpreter or living history accounts that imagine this and new kinds of stories. There's there's so much there and it's really beautiful. There's um, We just had the photographer, um, Sydney Paulson on our show. Her account is at Five Hens and Cockatiels on Instagram. And she does, she works with the brand directly doing stage photographs with the dolls, recreating movie scenes, and also of course, scenes from the brand. So a lot of really interesting stuff out there. Allison, something I wanted to get into before we run out of time is uh, American Girl dolls and their their connection with race and representation of people from different backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about how that's evolved over the decades? We've had, you know, really the privilege of a lot of people reaching out to us and sharing their stories, which are different from our own. And there's been some really fantastic think pieces. Aisha Harris has written extensively about the meaning of the Addie doll and her connections both to slavery and self-liberation. I think what has been really fascinating about doing the show is we get to be kind of this listening space. You know, you imagine a podcast as projecting out, but we hear so much from people who have these completely varied relationships with characters such as Josefina or Courtney or Kirsten. And the doll might be a kind of mirror for them in some way, or it might be a window to exploring something else, or they may have decided that it's too fraught a relationship with a certain character. And so they've chosen to no longer own that doll or to do something different with it. So, you know, I think from think pieces to decisions people make about their own closets and their own collections, adults are generally really thoughtful about how they engage with American Girl. Listeners can find a link to a Central Time conversation with Aisha Harris about the Addie doll at WPR.org. Just search our archives. We are talking to Mary Mahoney and Allison Horrocks. Their new book is called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. Back to your calls now. Janine is with us in Madison. Janine, hi. Hi there. What did you want to tell us about Janine? Um, We were very lucky, and my mother-in-law worked for the Pleasant Company when Pleasant owned it. And all of her granddaughters received dolls that were signed by Pleasant. So perished dolls through our family. Wow, Janine, that is fantastic. Uh, do you still have yours, I should ask? Well, it's actually my daughter. Your daughter's, and I'm sorry, yes. yes. We, we still have it in box because we're like, she had a whole bunch of other Pleasant Company dolls <laughs> because she played with those. The signed ones stayed in the box. But we, she was a very lucky girl because she grew up getting Pleasant Company paraphernalia for many years. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Janine. Yeah, and we've heard some other stories of people, uh, you know, when they have uh, sales by the company locally in uh, the Wisconsin area, uh, having memories of finding those. Uh, Mary, the idea of Pleasant, uh, Pleasant, uh, sorry, the American Girl dolls as collector items, it seems like most people didn't just leave them in boxes. Do I have that wrong? No, I mean, I think there's both. Allison's probably better to comment on this as a fellow collector, but I think they're both very well loved, but then some do actually keep them in pristine condition. Um, So Allison, are yours more actively loved or do you keep yours in boxes? 
gosh, none of my dolls have seen a box since the day that they <laughs> arrived on my front step. I was the same way with my Barbies. And from my family level, the play was always encouraged. And there are folks who say, gosh, you know, I wish I had really kept this more pristine. You know, you can always buy, someone is always willing to sell it, right? For some amount, but you can never get back the time that you enjoy playing with them. So that's how I rationalize having ruined a number of my dolls. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And uh, the, the price of the American Girl dolls is something you tackle in the book a little bit. It's it's a barrier to entry for some people that uh, raises some concerns, I think. Mary, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a very real concern. I think Pleasant at the time would say that in an, um, when American Girl debuted, she said, you know, a Nintendo game system costs mm. far more than an American Girl doll and the books. So, you know, this is not a fair critique, but I think from many families and people, you know, these dolls were beyond reach. And a lot of listeners have shared with us that this was sometimes occasioned the first real conversations they had about money as a family when they would ask for a doll for a birthday. And, you know, it was just not in the budget. And some fans grew up as adults, you know, with the dream of buying a doll for themselves, even as, you know, folks who aren't parents just to kind of um, like as a kind of wish fulfillment of a childhood wish. But I do think that those class barriers are, are real and, you know, definitely something that endures with the brand. Allison, something I got to ask. Now, sometimes when I go back and read a cherished book from my youth, uh, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it doesn't hold up. What was the experience like of of picking up these books that you'd read and as, as Mary mentioned earlier, mostly forgotten? Was it fun to read them again? Oh, they're definitely fun to reread. I think Molly was probably the hardest because we have, you know, just romanticized certain ideas and qualities about her. And there are pages where you're just so reminded as a reader in your 30s that she's nine, you know, or she's 10 <laughs> years old and she's she's <laughs> grappling with things. She and I still have a lot in common. Like we won't eat turnips, you know, that that's like an early <laughs> Molly go. reference. But the truth is, it's a lot of fun to revisit these things. I think if you go in with an open mind, right? And you're willing to see how the text hasn't changed, but you have, and that can be a great experience. We'll leave it there. Allison and Mary, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney are historians and co-hosts of the Dolls of Our Lives podcast. We've been talking about the cultural legacy of the Wisconsin-based American Girl brand and their new book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. You can keep sharing your stories over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Bottled water is a $300 billion global industry and the most consumed packaged drink worldwide. For many Americans, bottled water has become part of our everyday lives. But that's a pretty recent trend that has grown over the past few decades. Not that long ago, it was a punchline. Drink the bottled water. I feel silly buying it, though. Just Maybe I'm just too Midwestern, you know. It's like... Whenever I go in a store, I'm always like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I know I can get water free from any faucet, but I want to pay for it. I'm just curious, do you have any air back there? Can I buy your garbage? What do you think about it? It is water, right? How did we get to the point where we're paying for bottled water? That must have been some weird marketing meeting over in France, you know? Let's just tell the Americans the water's from France. (laughs) We bought it. 
That's comedian Jim Gaffigan doing a stand-up routine back in 2000. So why now do so many Americans spend billions of dollars each year on bottled water? In a new book, our next guest digs into that question and says that bottled water is part of a deeper story of the environment, inequality, and the commodification of a public service. You can join us at 800-642-1234. Do you drink tap or bottled water at home? Do you buy bottled water when you're dining out or traveling? Have you switched over to carrying a reusable bottle? And uh, were you part of the story a couple decades back when Perrier looked to bottle water here in Wisconsin? Big, long controversy there. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Daniel Jaffe is Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University, where he researches the social, environmental, and economic impacts of bottled and packaged water. His new book is called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Before we dig into the story behind bottled water, I don't know if people really realize the scope and the change uh, that's happened. I remember when you know, it was kind of like a joke where, so, oh, you've got a glass bottle of Perrier. Ooh, fancy. And now it's this dominant product. Can you talk about the rapid rise? Sure. Well, I started the book with a story of saying, I'm, I confess that I'm old enough to remember a time when I was in grade school in the 1980s when, uh, you know, a pl- single serve plastic bottled water was really not a, a product that anybody had thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, 1980, Americans consumed just two gallons per person per year on average. And it was pretty much as the comedian said, Perrier and heavy glass bottles uh, thought of as kind of an odd product. And somehow we got from that to just over 40 years later. Later, Americans consuming 47 plus gallons per person per year on average, uh, 90% almost of Americans consuming some bottled water, and uh, really surprisingly, one in five Americans um, refusing the tap entirely when it comes to drinking water and getting all of their drinking water uh, from packaged bottles. And so in researching this book, I was looking into that riddle of how we got there. Um, and I found just you know to sort of preview that bottled water turns out to not just be kind of a controversial product, which also has a lot of negative environmental impacts that many might be familiar with. But it it turns out, and I was surprised to find how deeply connected it is to the um, the social injustice and inequality crisis of uneven access to safe and affordable water, both here in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. I wanted to dig into that big picture, this idea, this debate you set out almost uh, at the beginning. Uh, is water a commodity that I can make money by selling in bottles or in other ways versus is water a public right or a public good that uh, we should take the profit motive out of? Uh, Could you talk about how that that conversation has changed over the last few decades? Yeah. So beginning, you know, and the the form in which many people are more familiar with that struggle, that struggle over water should be primarily a human right or a commodity um, provided by the market um, has first sort of came to people's mind and awareness in terms of struggles over whether uh, the provision of public tap water should be privatized in places around the world, um, from Bolivia to um, Indonesia to uh, cities here in the U.S., um, uh, private water companies began uh, taking over the provision of drinking water, and there were a lot of opposition movements that formed um, in response, uh, private companies taking over a, an essential service, and um, water rates would tend to rise, and there were contentions around the quality of the service, um, and a lot of backlash. And it turns out that um, 
while there was a big push for private tap water provision, there is a counter movement, a strong kind of a counterwind, uh, the, the remunicipalization of many of those systems has taken place, they've come back into public hands. But I think what's gotten less attention is this other major form of what some would call the privatization of, of drinking water, which is the rise of bottled and, and packaged water in, in different forms around the world. And it's sort of growth into a global industry, as you say, passing $300 billion. And I think that it turns out to generate its own kind of opposition movements. There's been less attention to it, but I think that it is set to very quickly become the largest, the fastest growing, and the most significant form of the privatization or the, or the, as you say, the commodification of drinking water. One big development that's turned out to be one of the big problems in bottled water is lightweight plastic. Can you talk about this technological development that really yeah. made it so relatively cheap to ship lots and lots of little bottles of water? Yes, it uh, <laughs> turns out that the the industry was experimenting with plastic water bottles as far back as 1969, uh, uh, actually. But it wasn't until the early 90s that they sort of cracked the code of making this lightweight PET plastic easily producible and um, sell. You know, so the conversion to PET plastic, that number one plastic lightweight bottles, began. And I think if you remember back to the 90s, those who were around, suddenly it seemed like everything was being sold in plastic instead of glass. And PET really was the development, the technological development that allowed the industry to mass produce this product and um, production and consumption grew very rapidly. And then bottled water became very big business and the big food and beverage companies got involved. And so not coincidentally in the 90s when all, was also when you saw the big soda makers, Pepsi and Coke, get into the business with Dasani and Aquafina, um, and they and Nestle uh, and Dannon began buying up smaller bottlers around the country and around the world. Um, and the, those four firms, the big four, I call them, um, have led the market both here at home and around the world uh, ever since. Talking to Daniel Chaffee about his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions. Daniel, one big point here. With with the early days of bottled water, it was like, oh, this is fancy stuff from a spring, you know, artesian wells, whatever. That's not mostly what we're drinking in the United States. Where is our water? When we buy that bottle of water, where is it usually coming from? Right. So the packaging uh, portrays usually pristine springs or lakes and a snow-clad mountain in the background. But in reality, um, over the last few decades, the makeup of bottled water has shifted to the point where in the U.S. now, only just a little over a third of bottled water comes from groundwater at all, springs or any other form. And almost two-thirds, something like 63% of bottled water sold on the shelves um, is taken simply from municipal water systems from the city water systems in different communities. It is taken out, uh, refiltered, the companies strip out the mineral content, and then they add their own sort of proprietary mineral mixes, which, you know, give it their trademark taste so that, you know, for example, Dasani would taste the same in Wisconsin as it would in New York State and California, um, which I think incidentally has probably contributed to training people's palates and maybe is one of the reasons why some people express dissatisfaction with the taste of their tap water. Um, but so yes, the vast majority of bottled water in the U.S. now is coming actually simply from public tap systems, but it is, of course, being sold for either hundreds to thousands of times the cost, and I and I will add that on um, on top of the cost difference, the environmental impact is 
is quite significant. Um, one study calculated that bottled water's energy impact is about 1,000 to 2,000 times higher per gallon than providing tap water. And then the overall environmental impact and counting all different factors is somewhere between, newer study, somewhere between 1,400 and 3,500 times higher. So it is a product with a very big uh, ecological footprint. And that's not even to mention the plastic waste crisis uh, on, a, on a global level. Let's mention that plastic uh, issue. Now, I think we th we might think, okay, I buy that plastic bottle, I drink it, I drop it in the bin, gets recycled, it'll show up in the next bottle of water. Mm. Uh, you did find it uh, in water uh, on the shores, I think in Thailand, Daniel, that this is a big plastic problem, these single-use bottles. Yeah, I mean, that was my first exposure to this really this global uh, disaster, I think, the ecological disaster of single-use plastic pollution, just at a, a place where the shore off of an island was was coated in a floating mass of pl plastic, mostly bottles, but other garbage as well for several hundred feet out. Um, but it turns out that globally, people are consuming between 600 and 700 billion single-use plastic bottles of all beverages. But because bottled water is by far the top selling packaged beverage around the world, it contributes the largest share to that marine waste problem. And one study found that bottles and their caps, the beverage bottles and their caps are the number one marine garbage item. Another study found that they accounted for almost 50% of all marine waste. So dealing with the global single-use plastics issue um, really requires dealing with the problem of uh, single-use beverages, but also particularly packaged water. And um, the U.S. recycling rate is actually quite low for these bottles. It's gone down over the years. It's down to about 26% of bottles were recycled. Most of those do not get turned into new bottles. Only something like 7 to 10% do. The rest are sort of what's called downcycled. They become you know, carpets or whatever, less uh, high-quality products. And around the world, the bottle recycling rate is much lower. It's something like 7 to 9%. Talking to Daniel Jaffe about his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you avoid plastic water bottles? What led you to do that, if so? Or are they uh, more convenient? Do you maybe trust it more than the tap water at your home or place of work? What questions do you have about the rise of this bottled water industry? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with Daniel Jaffe about the bottled water industry and his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Christina is with us in Glenwood City. Christina, hi. Hi there. Thank you. I, more often than not, I get my water uh, in glass bottles, spring water, I want to confirm that when it says spring water, is that in fact spring water and not purified? Christina, thanks for the call. Daniel, you write in the book that uh, regulations, especially if water doesn't cross state lines, uh, are non-existent or vague uh, at best? Right. Well, about the question of spring water labeling, the FDA... so. Bottled water, it's worth noting, is treated as a foodstuff and it's regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The FDA does have 
specific regulations about what can be called spring water. It's fairly liberal. Uh, it can involve getting groundwater in many different ways. Um, whether companies are abiding by those regulations, I, I have no way of knowing, but uh, there is at least a legal definition that they have to uh, be held to. But in contrast to FDA regulation of bottled water, um, the uh, regulation of tap water systems, our public tap water, is um, falls under the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, it's worth noting that the difference between those two, I, I sort of say, is a, effectively the difference between night and day. Um, there's a, a pretty dramatically uneven playing field between the bottled water industry and um, public tap water providers in terms of the regulatory uh, structures they're under, not so much in terms of the contaminants that they're allowed to have. They're held to roughly the same maximum levels of contaminants, but um, EPA regulation is far more rigorous. Tap water utilities have to test their water more often uh, and have to critically report to the public when they find contamination uh, almost immediately and also publish annual reports. Whereas bottled water companies, the concern is that they uh, test the water themselves. The FDA does inspect plants, but it has a diminishing number of inspectors. And there's been some interesting reporting on this by um, Consumer Reports and other outlets looking at the weakness of the bottled water regulatory regime. Overall, it's very, very unlikely that consumers will find out if and when the, the bottled water they're consuming had contamination found. Um, on top of that, I'll just add one more thing around bottled water safety, uh, which is that uh, peer-reviewed academic studies have been found recently that um, bottled water contains higher levels of microplastic fragments. And one academic study found that somebody consuming only bottled water uh, would uh, consume 22 times more microplastic fragments than someone who consumed only tap water. So there, there is a difference in the regulation and, and in what the, and what they contain. Christina, thanks for the call. Mike joins us now in Hudson. Mike, hi. Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, two things to note. I guess one, I've always had a strong preference of things out of a glass versus plastic. So I've not ever been an adopter of the plastic bottle cons consumer part. But the other question I have is how much of an impact are these water refilling stations having? I just traveled abroad to the UK and Ireland, and I was surprised to not see very many of them. Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, These you read about this in the book. These have sprung up uh, in a lot of places. Have these water refilling stations changed uh, sales of bottled water? So I'm going to assume that the caller is talking about refilling points, uh, water refilling uh, points like water fountains. In other words, getting your tap water out of a, a water refiller. Um, in, in that case, so that is a, a, a it's really happening um, in a lot of the, uh, the, the the wealthy nations and spreading around the world, the sort of the increasing what I call the reclaiming the tap segment of the movements responding to bottled water's growth. And that is a really fascinating kind of constellation of efforts that have happened between city governments, uh, nonprofit organizations, universities, other public and private institutions, um, the last decade or more to sort of turn back to tap water cities saying, hey, you know, we are the providers of this tap water and we know it's really clean and what does it make any sense for us to be purchasing bottled water for our city government offices or allowing it to be sold, say, on city property and public parks and a growing number of cities, large ones from San Francisco to L.A. to New York and others, um, but a lot of small communities counties around the country and and really around you know US Canada Europe and beyond are are um 
starting to uh, uh, in enact bans on purchasing or selling bottled water on city property. Um, and then the flip side, that sort of required two-step dance that they do if they ban it in some places is to then expand access to clean of public tap water, free public tap water in public places. And I think that's one of the most interesting and, and dynamic parts of what's going on is these uh, communities are rolling out shiny new, hundreds of shiny new uh, hydration stations, wa public water fountains, refill points, and then private businesses are getting in on the act. Um, there are networks with, where businesses have, have stickers in their windows. There are apps. One uh, big app is called the Refill app. It comes a nonprofit group based in the UK, but it now has, it's gone global. It has 300,000 refilling points on its app. So you can like look to find out what the nearest place you can get a free refill. Sometimes it's in a coffee shop that won't make you buy anything. They'll just give you free water. And that's sort of taking off as a, a movement. And it has actually gotten the attention of the bottled water industry. And they are concerned. I do a lot of reading of market literature and market reports. And um, the industry is concerned. And they say particularly young folks, but but across the board, people turning back to the tap is making a dent in sales. Um, I just looked at the latest statistics last week in the US. Um, for the first time since the Great Recession, bottled water consumption actually fell by one report by 1%. And that's new. And I think at least some of that change owes to um, these movements that are taking interest in um, reclaiming the tap. Uh, I quote one uh, representative uh, from a bottled water company who told a conference, quote, the, the water bottle has in some ways become the mink coat or the pack of cigarettes. It's socially not very acceptable to the young folks, and that scares me, unquote. So uh, the industry is alert to this, and, and they are concerned. Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, in our last couple minutes, another part of the story I want to get into, you looked at the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and some other places. Some of the bottled water marketing material, internal material you mentioned, talks about, hey, this is maybe a growth opportunity if people don't yeah. trust your trust their water. And you worry that that's going to lead maybe to uh, dis, lack of trust in municipal water and disinvestment in public water supplies. Can you uh, take our last couple minutes and talk about that? Yeah, that, that's very important. Um, so a counter trend to what I just described, this sort of turning back to the tap among um, people in communities that have the privilege of you know, high quality tap water, which is the vast majority of US drinking water utilities, by the way, but a small percentage, very small, seven, 8% of the absolute most of US water systems do have um, some uh, water quality health related violation within any given year. And those problems are not evenly distributed. They tend to fall disproportionately in certain kinds of communities, low income communities, rural communities, and overwhelmingly communities um, with uh, uh, predominantly populations of people of color, African Americans and Latinos in particular. And those, it turns out, are the social groups who also um, distrust their tap water the most and who have turned to buying bottled and packaged water the most. And um, the industry is, is aware of this. And so what we actually now have, I think, is, and, and, and rather than sort of say people are misinterpreting, obviously if 20% of people are not drinking tap water, uh, but it's only 7% you know, or 8% of the systems have a violation, some people are turning away from perfectly good water. But rather than say there's a misperception, I think we could see that as a, a logical reading of the uneven distribution of risks. And so um, I argue that um, you know, when we have, uh, I think that bottled water is in, in these communities is serving to increase 
economic and racial inequalities sort of between the clean water haves and have-nots. And I think we're only going to really be able to resolve this distrust and problem and the deterioration problem from underfunding of public water systems by restoring that federal role, federal government used to fund it at a much higher level, going back to strong federal funding that will bring up the quality and restore the quality of water systems across the board so that everyone will view tap water once again as trustworthy. Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rob. That's Daniel Jaffe, Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University. We've been talking about his latest book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. Still time for you to share your thoughts over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. You can follow these conversations all the time, anytime online at WPR.org, stream live or check out or share archived copies of conversations here on Wisconsin Public Radio. You can also download the Wisconsin Public Radio app. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.